I wanted to start in Exodus today for a couple of reasons. Um, we happen to be reading devotionally through Exodus right now. But Exodus chapter 1, I think, is also very uh, relevant for the time we live in, even specifically this, this weekend in light of the events that have just happened uh, concerning the March for Life and various things that are going on in our nation. So I'm going to read uh, Exodus chapter 1. It's not a real long chapter. We're going to read the chapter, and then we're going to go through and discuss some specific verses and look at what God is showing us in the Scripture. Amen? Exodus chapter 1. Now there are... Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation." But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel." So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Sifra, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then you, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Well, Father in heaven, we ask that you would cause your word, cause your truth, 
cause the gospel that is written on every page of Scripture, Lord, cause that gospel to enter our hearts and change and transform us. Lord, conform us to the very image of the Son of God for your glory. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we see here in Exodus chapter 1, if I could sum it up, is that God's plan to multiply and increase His people cannot be stopped. Even what the enemy uses for our evil destruction, God works for our good and for His glory. Christ has promised to build His church. Jesus declared that in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the Scripture teaches that our destiny in Christ is ultimately to be glorified. Romans 8, 28 through verse 30 give us this progression that God knows us, He foreknows us, He calls us, He chooses us, He predestines us to be conformed to the image of the Son. And ultimately, Paul writes, He brings us to glorification. This is the eternal plan and the eternal purpose of God. It's not a new plan. It's not something God thought up after Jesus came. It's not something God thought of after man fell into sin in the garden. This is the eternal plan, the eternal purpose of God. That means that everything God has done in bringing about creation even in bringing us into this building today, even in allowing a flood to sweep through our community two years ago, everything God does, worldwide, corporately, and personally, He does to bring about His eternal plan and His eternal purpose. And God has eternally planned to have a people for Himself And He has eternally planned that this creation would be filled with the image of His glory. And it is through you and me, it is through His church, through His people, that God is filling the earth with the image of His glory. So, this is not a new thing. This is something that God continuously shows us throughout the Scripture. So, as I always tell you, when you read the Bible, whether you're reading in the book of Genesis or the book of Exodus or whether you're reading in the book of Revelation, we read the Bible with eyes to see Christ. We read the Bible with eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel. So let's go through this chapter and let's look at some things that stick out here that I think that are are very important for us. I want to draw your attention to verses 6, to verse 6 and to verse 8. Actually, those verses 6, 7, and 8. And we see, it says, that Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly. They were multiplied and they grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Then verse 8 says this, Now the there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And what we see in this verse, and I think what we could all agree on and what we all understand is that from generation to generation, we tend to forget. 
And we have a scriptural precedence for this. In our prosperity, in our affliction, it doesn't matter what the condition is. In prosperity or in affliction, because man is born into sin, he is prone to forget the past and follow the same patterns of unbelief that all mankind has followed since the fall. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, basically, if we could reduce it to this, he says, history repeats itself because man doesn't remember. And man doesn't remember because we continuously have men born into this world who are born into sin and death. They're born into darkness. They are blind. They are deaf. They are dead apart from Christ. And how can they know any different until? But this is the importance of God having a people in the earth who do remember of God having a people in the earth that pass on from generation to generation to generation the truth that God has made known and declared to us, not only in His creation, but He has now graciously given to us this truth revealed to us in His Word. But more importantly, He has given us this truth and revealed this truth to us in the person of His Son who actually came to earth, who was born, who lived, and who died on a cross and was raised on the third day so that you and I could experience the miracle of resurrection life, of eternal life, the gift that God will give to us in Christ. So we see that from generation to generation, we tend to forget. Now I want you to think about this. Not only Israel, but Egypt forgot. You go back to Genesis and you read the story of Joseph in Genesis and you see that God took this 17-year-old brother who was despised by his other siblings and had him mercifully sold into slavery in Egypt instead of murdered in the bottom of a pit. And the brothers thought that they had gotten rid of their sibling that they hated so much, but little did they know that God had a plan, and over the next over the next 13 years, God brought that plan into being until he reunited that family unknowingly. And that's how Joseph came to be in Egypt. And that's how Israel came to be in Egypt. And that's how the children of Israel came to be in Egypt. And they became a mighty people. But that didn't just begin with Joseph. And that didn't just begin with Jacob. But God told Abraham the great-grandfather of Jacob, or the grandfather of Jacob. He told Abraham, he said, your descendants will be carried off into a land and they will be slaves in that land, but I will redeem them, I will visit them, and I will bring them out of that slavery. And we see Israel 430 years living in Egypt, living in slavery. And Egypt forgot that Joseph was used by God to save that nation. And Israel forgot the promises of God and under the oppression of slavery and in the abundance of the kingdom of Egypt, everyone forgot what God had said and what God had promised. 
But here's the good news. God didn't forget. And God in His grace and in His mercy delivered Israel in spite of their unbelief. And God in His justice judged Egypt because of their unbelief. So we see that God intervenes in the life of His people to bring them to faith. And His intervention in your life is His grace working on your behalf to bring you to faith. Israel got lost in slavery, but God never forgot, and God did not allow them to forget, but God worked in those 430 years to prepare a people to be carried out of Egypt, not just a few people, but a mighty people, a numerous people. In fact, when you read in Exodus, they're called an army, that God led an army out of Egypt. It was His people. And God spent 430 years preparing that army to be led forth. Now, you and I have the luxury of reading about it and hearing about it in our air-conditioned padded seats in a comfort-controlled environment. But Israel lived that slavery for 430 years. And for 430 years, they cried out, and they asked God, how long will it be before we are delivered? Have you ever been there? We're approaching the end of flood recovery. We will probably hit the two-year mark. There's no doubt we will exceed the two-year mark before our last house is recovered. What situations in your life have you cried out to God and said, God, how long will it be before you move on my behalf? God, have you forgotten about me? Lord, are you aware of my situation? Listen, church, I promise you, he is absolutely aware of your situation. And I will go ahead and take the liberty to say this, that he has in fact ordained your situation, whether you like it or not. He is not the God who is almost Lord of all things. He is the God who is the Lord of all things, and nothing happens in his creation apart from his knowledge. Nothing happens in his creation apart from his sovereign power. There is no force in his creation. There is no force in heaven. There is no force in hell that is outside of God's influence and God's control. But God is absolutely Lord of all. And he is ever eternally working to bring about his plan, his purpose, and his glory in all things. We go down to verse 12. And we see that now the children of Israel are being afflicted heavily. And it says, But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were, that is the Egyptians, were in dread of the children of Israel. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. This is why history is important. This is why it's important that you don't just read your refrigerator scriptures and run to the Scripture, your favorite Scripture, and pick them out of the Bible and, and hang on to that. 
and hope for the best. No, what's important is that you get this book and you begin to read it from cover to cover, from front to back. Because when you do that, you begin to see how God has historically worked. Remember what's history? It's his story. Whatever part of history you want to talk about, it's his story. Because he is the author of everything that we know. And so we read the scripture and we see that historically, in his story, God has used tribulation and persecution to grow his people personally and to multiply them corporately. Now, we might not always be conscious of that in the midst of the press, in the midst of the pain, but as we read the scripture, as we meditate on the truth that God has given to us, we cannot escape this fact and this reality. And God has done that to give us hope so that we can endure through the tribulation and through the persecution. God calls us to embrace both affliction and abundance, knowing that God uses both to bring about his glorious purpose. God takes what is harsh to us and uses it to produce in us the fruit of his spirit. He eternally works in this way for our good and for his glory. And then it says that the Egyptians were in dread of the children of Israel. Listen, church, biblical Christianity. Paul says, if anyone comes to you and preaches another gospel, don't listen to him. Well, what does that tell you? We need to learn how to read not just the things printed in black and red in our Bible, but we need to learn how to read the things between the lines too. If Paul says, if anyone comes to you with another gospel, don't listen, what did Paul just tell you? There is another gospel. There is the gospel and then there's the other gospel. Don't listen to the other gospel. Listen only to the gospel. There are a lot of things people are calling Christianity today, but they are not Christianity. Biblical Christianity is feared by the world because it demands that man give up the illusion of his control. Man in his sinful heart seeks control. How do we know that? Because that is what we see from the very first man that was created and placed in the garden to the very last man that will be alive on this earth at the coming of Jesus Christ. Man seeks control. Pharaoh in Egypt thought they could control Israel and so control the destiny and the future of both nations. Their fear turned into cruel bitterness. That's usually what fear does. It turns into cruelty. Have you ever had a pet that you love and that loves you bite you because he was fearful? People do the same things. We see this all around us today as man seeks control in every way. Think about it. From the media to the government to the weather to the earth itself, man believes he has the power to control his own destiny and that of others. Man is sinful, man is arrogant, and man is dead wrong. Man in his sinfulness desires to hold the position only God can hold. God, not man, is Lord. 
before God is anything to us, before Jesus is anything to us, He is Lord of all. And we cannot, we must not, as God's children, forget that. Verse 17, so Pharaoh says, look, all the boys, murder them. All the girls keep alive, and pretty soon we'll just, we'll just water that race down, and they'll just kind of disappear, and we'll be okay. But it says that the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they saved the male children alive. We are to fear God more than we fear men. We are to fear God even more than those who rule over us. The law of God transcends the laws of men. And like the Hebrew midwives, we are opposed. We are to be opposed to the things that God himself opposes. An example in our day is abortion. Even though the law of the land says it is legal and right, it is not right. Abortion stands opposed to God himself, who is the author of life. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This is not the first time I have mentioned abortion from, from this pulpit. And I have had more than one family leave our church because of the stand that I take on abortion. I've had more than one family, I've sat down with, with these families, who said it's not the place of the church to get into politics. You shouldn't be preaching politics from the pulpit. And my response is abortion has nothing to do with politics. Abortion is an issue of life. Abortion is not a political issue. Abortion is a spiritual issue. And I spend quite a lot of time, it seems, talking with Christians who seem to believe that abortion is okay. I was having a discussion recently with someone who said, well, until we find a solution for all these babies that you want to have born, what, the solution is to murder them? I bring this up because we're living in a day and a time, church, that we better be prepared to take a stand for truth. And when you take a stand for truth, it may cost you. It may cost you friendships. It may cost you relationships. It may cost you all kinds of things. But the question is, are we, are we a people who fear God more than we fear man? Are we a people that are more worried about our popularity among men than we are our standing before God. This is what has happened to the church of the Lord Jesus. She has become fearful of man. She has become afraid to take a stand politically. She has become afraid to talk about things that are controversial. We've bought this lie that the enemy has sown into the hearts of God's people that all we are to do is to just make sure we are nice and we get along and we don't hurt anybody's feelings and we just turn everybody else over to God and let God deal with them. I challenge you, and I would love to do it, 
I challenge you to get your Bible out and, and, and read your Bible. The whole, the whole Bible. Read the message God has given us and tell me if that is what you see God commanding his church to do and who he commands his church to be in the scripture. I think if you're honest with yourself, just like we all have to be honest with ourselves, God is calling us to be a courageous people who will stand up for truth and oppose the things that he opposes even though it may cost us personally. This is what the Hebrew midwives did. They stood up even though it would cost them personally. They feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And in verse 20 and 21, it says, Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. The best interpretation of that, he provided households for them, is that God blessed them and he grew the people of Israel and he grew the families of these midwives and he gave them descendants and he multiplied their descendants. And what we see is Pharaoh's best effort to commit genocide and stamp out this people of God backfired on him and God continued to grow and increase and multiply them. And this is exactly what we see God doing throughout history, not just with the Jewish people, but we see that with all of God's people. We see, we see this in the book of Acts, that the church began to flourish under persecution. We saw this, and we see this taking place in China today, that the church is exploding under persecution. We see it in the Middle East today. It's not reported in the news media. But everybody that's working on the ground in the Middle East knows that there is a huge move of God and revival taking a place among Muslim nations. The harder ISIS tries to stamp out Christianity, the more Christianity is beginning to grow and flourish. It is how God has worked historically. It is how God will work in your life, in my life. We have no reason to be fearful. We have every reason to be faithful. God works that way, and he works that way down to the smallest detail. He knows how to produce faithfulness in his people. And through the process of cultivating the ground of our heart and pruning the branches, God works to produce fruitfulness in his people. We see in verse 22, the last verse of this chapter, and God looked upon the children of Israel. I'm sorry, wrong chapter. So Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. What we see is that the world will continue to oppose the truth even when it is proved foolish to do so. Later on, we're going to see that God brings the ten plagues to Egypt. And Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. And we look at our world today and we say, how can people say things like that? How can people do things like that? How can people believe things like that? It doesn't even make common sense. 
But we see that the world continues to harden their heart and oppose the truth, even when it's proved foolish to do so. The blatant disregard for God and the things of God is a result of man's hard and ever-hardening heart. Here's the good news. Only God can create a new heart. You can't give yourself a new heart. I can't give myself a new heart. Only God can create a new heart. And we pray that God will give new hearts to those whose hearts are hard toward the Lord Jesus and toward the things of God. And when we face opposition, we should not be surprised, but we should pray and work ever more fervently for His glory to be known. Don't be surprised when the world opposes the things of God. Continue to pray, continue to work, continue to press on and trust God. God's plan to multiply and increase His glory through His people will never be stopped by the enemy's effort to afflict God's people. God uses all things, especially the affliction of His people, to bring us from unbelief in a distant God to trust in the God who is with us. Egypt, the children of Israel are in Egypt, and God to them is some distant God who they're hoping is hearing their cry. And God worked to bring them from that unbelief in a distant God to a faith and a trust in a God who revealed himself to be present with them. A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. He split the Red Sea. He brought plagues down upon the Egyptians. He preserved the, the, the property and the lives of his people. He demonstrated himself not to be a God distant from us, but to be a God present with us. Now, God is not only with us, but Christ dwells in you. And if you are in Christ, then Christ in you has now become your indwelling and abiding hope of glory. I don't care what you're going through in life. You are never without hope if you are in Christ. It's not how difficult your life is. It's not how hard the situation is. It's not how dark the night is. It is how great God is. It is how powerful His salvation is. It is how bright His light is that breaks through our darkness. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, the same God who spoke light into the darkness of creation is the same God that will shine a light in your heart to give to you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Christ in you is your abiding hope of glory. We are never without hope. We may forget, but God does not. He is faithful even when we are faithless. God uses all things, even our afflictions and our enemies, to bring about our good and His glory in all of His eternal plan and purpose. The world fears true Christianity, and we should take courage in that. The fear of God is the love of God. 
to fear God is to love God. It is to hold fast to his truth, even in the face of death, and most certainly in the face of political correctness. Our faithfulness to God will result in God dealing well with us now and for eternity. We should expect to meet opposition in the world for the things of God, but then we should expect to overcome those things opposing us by the grace of God. God does not allow any opposition to come to you that he is not prepared to empower you to overcome. Victory is not something we will have one day in Jesus. Victory is what we have right now in Jesus. The world is opposing us, but we have overcome the world. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I want to invite you to come to the table. God from eternity purposed to have a people for himself and for his glory. God the Father eternally purposed to send the Son to redeem for himself a bride, a called out people. That is a people from every tongue, from every tribe, from every nation. A people from all throughout this world. Christ came to redeem his church his very own called out people. This is what I read to the kids today. This is why you are the most special thing God created because out of all of creation, God calls you his special treasure. This table reminds us each time we come to it of that redeeming work that has made us his own. By his body and by his blood, he has redeemed his people from the whole world and made us one in him. So as you get ready to come to the table, I want you to take a moment. I want you to look around. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, discern the body of Christ. And I believe what Paul is writing there is an exhortation for the people who are the body of Christ to look around and see the other members who are with them, joined with them, having become one with one another in this body we call the body of Christ. And discern, to discern the body of Christ is not to just discern the bread. It is to discern one another. That God has taken black and white and brown and yellow and red and rich and poor and tall and short and, and large and not so large and bald and long hair and young and old, and he has taken from throughout the world a diversity, and he has assembled it together and made it one in him. And we cannot say one is more important than the other, one is more valuable than the other, because each of the one make up the whole body of Christ. If you have never trusted in Jesus, I invite you to trust in him now. And as you trust in Jesus, Christian, come to the table of the Lord.